Hello and welcome to the podcast uh, from my backyard shed. <laughs> uh, my name is Ben Tertine. I'm the pastor of Colossae East, and this is our sermon. This is how we do sermons during the week now uh, for the unforeseeable future. We, you know, I don't know how much longer we'll have to do this kind of thing, but uh, as as time has worn on, I think we've enjoyed it a little bit. There's something about this way of teaching that gives you some more uh, freedom to pause it, rewind it, wait until uh, your children stop screaming at you because you didn't give them cereal. Oh my goodness, that's what happened yesterday at our house. Brutal. <laughs> you ever get real upset about something and then later on you're kind of like, I don't know if I should have got that upset about, well, anyway. So that's why I'm out in the shed. I'm trying to escape my wonderful children. Um, now I've got a steel roof on here and I hear the rain coming, so I hope it doesn't get too loud. Enough about all that. If you're from Colossae East, welcome. And if you're listening from beyond, uh, welcome to you just the same. We have been walking through the um, the gospel passages as the Revised Common Lectionary lays them out. And today, uh, we're going to do the same. We get to enter into, uh, I would say, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, uh, though I'm not alone in that. John 17 is pretty cool. So I'm going to ask a few questions to start off, and then we will look at the first 11 verses of John 17, and then um, a few more in it, too. Um, this is a This is a big deal. You know, any Bible teacher, pastor is going to open the Bible and they're not going to say, oh, this doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it's all kind of a big deal. Um, but John 17, the high priestly prayer, it's not recorded in any of the other Gospels. It is an intimate window, I think, into a, into the Trinity, Father, Son, like the heartbeat of God. Uh, so it's pretty profound at that level. Okay, so... Enough about all that. I want to ask you a few questions to get us going on a path. Here's the first one. Would you prefer to live a glorious life or a horrible life? <laughs> That's a terrible question, isn't it? It's kind of mean. It's obvious. I would. Oh, maybe, maybe it's not, but I think most of us would say glorious. Here's the real question. When you think about glory, what do you imagine? Now, that can go a lot of ways. Let's hone it in. When you think about the glorious life, what do you imagine? Have you ever thought that everything you're doing throughout every single day is a pursuit of some kind of glorification? A pursuit to make things cleaner, more organized, more just, better planned? fuller, more beautiful, you know, we're always doing some kind of glorification pursuit. Pursuit. Right now, I think a lot of folks might imagine glory in a moment where, say, COVID is completely done once and for all, a glorious freedom from that sort of threat. We love glory. No doubt we do. There are these things we could say, oh, I think of some paintings I've seen, I think of moments out at Cannon Beach or, you know, in cool spots, whatever. There's, there are these moments. We like that. Um, 
But we're going to read this excerpt today from Jesus' high priestly prayer. And there's a lot of this language of like, you glorify me, and they glorify us and you, and please glorify your name and mine. And there's this language of glorification, a lot of it. And I think that kind of talk as he prays to the Father is interesting because he's talking to God. And I thought that Jesus was God. And so, like I said, this is a window into the life, the, the communication between members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. It's the deep heart of God. It's amazing. Okay, like I said, we'll start with the first 11 verses in a second. But I want to tell you a story, or introduce you, I think is a better way to say it. I want to introduce you to a man before we go there. Um, he's a Jesus-following guy, uh, lived in the 4th century. I think when you look at all of the old paintings of this guy, you know, he's got like this gold aura around his head, and he's usually holding a real pretty shepherd's staff, so he must have been pretty personal. Uh, his name is Hilary of Poitiers. He is an old, well, you know, I don't know how to put it. <laughs> he's an old guy. <laughs> Uh, I love reading these old Christians, patristic fathers, uh, early scholars, theologians, pastors. Sometimes I'm thinking of them in one way or another. That's not quite right. But Hillary is a guy who is thinking about uh, the Trinity in a time where Trinitarian discussion was uh, ripe. Lots of conversation going on about it. In his book uh, on the Trinity, he will say that the Son's glorification— uh, is the is the, like the thing that makes Jesus or God so glorious, most glorious, number one moment of glory in God's whole entire existence um, is the cross. It's the death. It's that moment. Now, some of us were trained to see that that cross for kind of a blood source and and really nothing more to see the sacrifice of Jesus, to be thankful, have the right response. He paid the price. Uh, now let's move on. We know that the sacrifice is satisfied. Next. But I think this moment was way more than just a spilling of blood. How precious is the flow? Yes. That makes me white as snow. Yes. Yes. It's good. I don't want to cast dispersion on that. But it's so much more, my friends. And when Hilary of Poitiers picked up on that, he started paying close attention to what happened in that moment uh, that Jesus, this man from Nazareth, dies. And what did happen in that moment? Well, in Matthew 27, 51 to 54, you know, really not, that's an emphatic point all around that whole section of text. You see the story of Jesus dying. And in Matthew's description, especially in those verses, um, the experience in Jerusalem when Jesus dies is incomprehensible. I mean, the, the heavens go totally dark. There's a splitting of the Holy of Holies veil and the temple, this real several inches thick fabric that just miraculously gets ripped in half. The Holy of Holies is exposed now. Matthew says the ground is literally shaking, quaking, rocks breaking people raising up out of graves. We get this almost zombie moment. Look, <laughs> you know, it's really weird. It gets really strange and kind of undiscernible. 
And as this horrible and humiliating and brutal crucifixion moment is about to begin, so, you know, before all that darkness step and, you know, before all that goes down, Jesus will say to his disciple, and he will talk in this high priestly prayer, he will say, Father, the hour has arrived. This hour that I have to go do that, it's time. My mission is going to be complete after this is done. John telling this story up until now, have he's included several moments where people want Jesus to sort of go live super public, and Jesus will say, my hour has not yet arrived. But here he's saying, my hour has arrived, it's time. Before now, the mission is not finished. And that's interesting because he's still on mission the whole time. And I think it's like Jesus is slowly but surely teaching these disciples for three years, <laughs> you know, thereabouts, about the love of God uh, that almost nobody could believe. You just couldn't get your head around this, that this was God's kind of will, <laughs> you know? Even the ones who say they believe in God and they do believe, they still can't hardly grasp it. There I'm talking about the disciples. They say they believe. I don't think they're lying. They do believe, but they're still like, what the what? This doesn't make sense. So it doesn't fit with the God of the Bible that their parents and their most powerful religious leaders had taught them. It's kind of, you get what I'm saying there? It's like, if you've been taught about how God is, and then somebody rolls up and says, hey, I'm a messenger of God, <laughs> you're kind of going to make a judgment on some sort of basis about whether they're crazy or legit. Jesus is saying this, and there's something about what he does and how he lives that causes them to sort of say, he he has to be legit. <laughs> Nobody but the Son of God or, you know, God himself could do this. But it just isn't what we were figuring he would be like. He's not supposed to be forgiving like that. He's supposed to wait until people repent before he forgives them. And he's just offering forgiveness. He's supposed to wait until people turn to the God of healing before he heals them. And he's just healing them. This isn't fair. He's supposed to be obeying the rules the way that grandma and grandpa taught us to obey the rules. Otherwise, he doesn't honor God. And Jesus is telling us that we're not honoring God. This can't be right. <laughs> so there's all kinds of problems. But the point is, is in all of this ministry with them, about three years, he's sort of circling around constantly down to this moment. It's like he's consistently revealing who God is, and they're grasping it piece by piece as they walk with him. And I think at the heart of why they are, they're willing to follow him but still so confused is because that piece of the way Jesus treats them is so different. And I think it's best understood with the word mutuality. He treats them as mutuals. He, he, he invites always, but doesn't control them. Even when Judas is about to do his worst, Jesus doesn't stop him. He, I think, in an almost like eye-roll, sarcastic way, invites him to reconsider his choices here. <laughs> but when you would, as you know, if you're like, oh, well, he, if he stands for justice and healing and stuff, he's going to stop Judas and carry on the good work of God. But in that moment, the good work of God is something that's almost unknowable to us. He treats him as a mutual. That's the hardest part to grasp. This man of God, maybe even sent from God, might even be the son of God. Boy, it sure looks like that. 
when he's healing blind people or calming storms. He looks like Almighty God for sure when he's doing that stuff. Remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Whoa, that had to be God. But not when he's washing our feet. No. Telling us to allow him to love us and care for us? No, 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 that's not glorious. We'll call a lot of the things Jesus did glorious, but not that kind of foot washing. That's lowly. He wouldn't, whatever. Okay, you see what I'm getting at? So Jesus has been revealing this love of God for several years, but here at the end of his mission, he comes to the moment he's been alluding to all along, the hour. This is what will make or break the mission, the hour, this hour. Father, he says, the hour has arrived. And Jesus prayerfully sets his heart and mind to this brutal reality. All right. Now, Hilary of Poitiers, he wrote about this message, about this passage. And as I told you, Hillary was an old school Christian. He's living in the mid to late 300s AD. And that was a pretty big moment in our history because we're we're really trying to get our heads around what the Trinity is. There's lots of debate back and forth. You read some of the letters. Oh, man, they're intense. Christianity is spreading. And Hillary is raised in a family that holds to the ways and the beliefs that are very normal and common throughout the rest of the city where he lives. I think they're pretty well, well-to-do, and they were known as prominent pagans, say the history books. Don't get too carried away with that word pagan. I, you know, pagan, think polytheism, it, Greek culture, you know, they're just worshiping lots of different gods is the idea. The point is, they're not in any way Christian. And so, there's there's this world that he's in. He's well-to-do, raised by parents who are prominent in this way of life. And there's lots of philosophical activity in his day, lots of writing and people sort of debating about what's true. And he's compelled, Hillary is, by a group called the Neoplatonists, and this isn't a philosophy course, so I'll let you look that up on your own. One of the key things was just this, they had this deep sense that all of reality uh, came from one single source. So he's not the only one who, in Christian thinking and writing, was toying with those ideas, because we believe God is this sort of single source of all reality. So anyway, he's in this world and and is in no way brought up with flannel grams and Sunday school learning John 3.16 every week. <laughs> okay, that's my point. And something about the people in his world who were following the way of Jesus compelled them, I think. He was moved by the story of Jesus and his, and his resurrection. And likewise, he began to practice uh, Jesus's way of life. In that sense, I think he became a Christian. And just for a second here, if you're if if you're listening to this and you're like, wait a minute, a way of life, a practice, that sounds like it's a little bit, I don't know about, that sounds like legalism. If, if it's ruffling you a little bit, just hold on for a second. I, I, it's not a burden and it's not a law. That's not what we're talking about. A way of Christ, it's a way of mutual responsibility alongside others. It's a way of mutual respect and honor and love for the neighbor, for the other. All right. So it's and and when you say if you're like, well, what do I have to do? Well, that's kind of the question we all have to work out on a moment to moment basis. What is this way of love? And that's what causes us to go to Jesus. As soon as we go to a law, it does become legalism. 
But Hillary is moved by the way that they live, a way of mutual generosity and provision, a way of trust and peace, rather than anxious fighting. Um, And they had a lot of reasons to be anxious and to fight, (laughs) but they weren't. It's a way that reveals, I think, all the deceit in the world that keeps us stuck in greed, keeps us stuck in cruelty toward others, keeps us stuck in dishonoring others, you know, um, keeps me stuck in overreacting to my children. (laughs) You know, so Jesus's way helps us break those kinds of chains. So it's not a stifling way. I think Hillary's compelled by this way. And then somewhere just after 350 AD, the people in his ministry uh, have come to love this guy so much that they ask him to be their bishop. So he goes for it. He says, yeah, I'll do that. And then he's teaching and he's preaching and he becomes a pretty prominent Christian. Uh, in some circles, he's he's dubbed the hammer of the Arians. <laughs> uh, there was a big debate. Arianism was a heresy running rampant, and people were debating that. So he was involved with that. Sometimes folks will call him the Athanasius of the West. And it's, I think, because I am a pastor in mid-COVID 2020, and the world around me is hurting, and folks are like they were in Hillary's day, I think listening to and trusting things, substances, voices that promise hope and healing and a way forward. Isn't that what everybody is just desperately listening to right now? Lots of competing philosophy, lots of debate and public argument. So what was it that compelled Hillary, that moved him to a place where he was like James and Peter and John? It moved him to a place where he said, I'm in. Many others, like Mary from Magdala, fishing town on the north side of Galilee, devotes her entire life to ministering alongside Jesus. And Phoebe, who ran with the great apostles like Paul, Junia, the uh, a female apostle who gave her life to teaching and preaching in the church, to helping other people see and know Jesus. What was so glorious that compelled these folks, you know? Well... I think it's the same thing that compelled Hillary, and I think that there are some profound thoughts in these words that he gives us, okay? So, he's writing uh, in his book on the Trinity, and he's talking about this opening to the high priestly prayer. We haven't even read it yet. We will right after this. (laughs) But here it is. Um, He's talking about that statement that opens it up. Father, the hour has arrived. Those are the words of Jesus. What is this hour, Hillary asks. Answer. He was now to be spit on, scourged, crucified. But the Father glorifies the Son. And that's a capital S, meaning the the Son, a person. The Son, lowercase s, the star, the Son, instead of setting, fled And all the other elements felt that same shock of the death of Christ. The stars in their courses to avoid complicity in the crime escaped by self-extinction from beholding the scene. The earth trembled under the weight of our Lord hanging on the cross and testified that it did not have the power to hold within him who was dying. 
The centurion proclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. Creation is set free by the mediation of this sin offering. The very rocks lose their solidity and strength. This is that scene in Matthew. The whole world shaking, going dark, as though we cannot handle what's happening. The actual physical world is like, no, it's too much. The elements feel that same shock of the death of Christ. The earth trembling under the weight of the Lord, hanging on the cross. That's what made the earth tremble. Not a fist of destruction pounding down on it in judgment fury. It was an overwhelming love on a small stick stuck into the rock. And he's hanging there, and the earth couldn't handle that. The way that the whole scene goes dark and tremoring, chaotic, it's all unknowable. Jesus is innocent. He's not deceitful in any way. He's never harmed another human being, not, not for any reason at all. Even his friends, when they harm another human being, he heals them. He puts the ear back on, okay? His love is not imaginable. It has no boundary, no limit. He shuns no human being. In the social justice movement in Jerusalem during Jesus' day, they hated Jesus because he did not intend to bring the evil-doing humans to glorious justice. That's the, the glory for them was killing the people that were in the way of goodness. His peacemaking method was to forgive and heal and love and to grace or to give to people. And the world said, you need to protect. You need to save and store and keep the path of glory is the path of survival and power. And Jesus said, you only think that because of the things that make a lot of sense to you, but are actually still untrue. Just tell me this. Do you feel more alive when you are helping another person come alive? Or do you feel more alive when you're putting more stuff into your storage locker? Would you rather have power to control everybody else around you? I mean, yeah, that sounds pretty good <laughs> sometimes. Or would you rather be infinitely loved and cared for as a mutual by everybody around you? For real, deep down, you know, because yesterday when my son was complaining about breakfast, I'll tell you what, I wanted some control there. I might have tried to grasp onto it a little bit too hard. Is that really what I want, though, as a human? Because I tell you what, when I grasped onto that control, it didn't increase my bonded love between my son and I. I overreacted. He had to recoil in fear. Our relationship was broken for an hour or two. It took repairing and redemption to come back. It's fascinating. But what I want is mutuality, really, deep down. We want that love and togetherness as humans. We do. But my goodness, that good desire, I think, gets really bent in so many ways. And by the time you find yourself in places like mid-COVID 2020 America, you know, it starts to feel like death. I, it, the whole world around starts to feel brutal. And, and so then in those moments, it's like, well, I don't know what life looks like even, but at least having more money so I can have some experiences, at least that would be okay, better. I mean, it starts to feel like we cannot know what is good or even glorious anymore. What is glorious in this moment? What's a good way to live right now, today? Well, here we are at John 17 now. Turn there with me. I'm going to read it out of the um, New Living Translation. 
I like that translation quite a bit. But you can read it from any any translation. And I think I mentioned, this is the scene where we're in the upper room discourse. Um, it's a time of intimate teaching in between Jesus's sort of ministry out in public and where he will go, uh, which is the cross. So this is right before that final hour. All right. And I said before, I'll remind you again, I think this gives us a picture of the interior life of God, if that's even a category that exists. You know, I don't, I don't know if we can even talk about God that way. That's how I understand myself. So it just, it feels like what you have here is the Son of God praying to the Father and, and talking about this connectedness. So we've been saying that if you want to know what God is really, really like, more than anybody's verse, they pull out of context and say, here's what he's like. He hates you. <laughs> I've had a lot of people do that to me, actually. Here's a verse that proves God hates you. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, more than yanking a verse out of context or more than any traditional view or doctrinal statement or all the different ways we try to ascertain knowledge of what God is like, more than anything, we have to look first and foremost at Jesus because Jesus says, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. Author of Hebrews says, "You, we've all been spoken to in many ways by God and, and so forth, but nothing so clearly or fully is in the Son. So we want to listen to Jesus speak for himself in the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which I believe are the gospel altogether. All of it, the whole story of what is contained in those gospels is the gospel, the good news. And so we want to hear Jesus in his own words at that. And so this moment becomes very helpful because it's him praying and it's not him praying, you know, well, I think he's clearly praying for our benefit. It's recorded in the New Testament. <laughs> but he's praying a deep desire that he truly has uh, and expressing it to the Father. John 17 verses 1 through 11. I'll read it all the way through, and as we've done in the past, we'll come back through and make a few notes. 17.1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Interesting. He acknowledges something in that posture, doesn't he? Father, he says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. These are the disciples he's talking about here. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and I believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. 
and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, hmm. so that they may be mutually bound to us in the way that we are bound to one another. Note that he is praying specifically and only for his disciples here. That's who he means when he says, these ones that you gave me from out of the world. But he will, in just a few lines, expand his prayer to all. And we'll make more mention of that in a second here. So don't think of this as just some sort of exclusive, I don't care about other people. We're just reading one excerpt out of the prayer. Well, this hour has come. This glorification that Jesus is talking about, as we started out saying, is seen most fully and completely in the cross. The glorious death. You don't preach glorious and death in the same sentence very often. Or maybe you do in, in like a heroic blaze of glory. I mean, that's where the phrase comes from, right? The super macho, and then you die doing that. No, this is a humble, accused as a dirty, filthy, criminal lowlife, scumbag. That's what people see Jesus as when he's hanging on the cross. And the, and the point is that that's glorious. We have to wonder why. <laughs> well, in verses 1 through 3, I think we hear Jesus acknowledging that the Father has given Jesus authority to give eternal life to all those you have given him. It's interesting, okay? I don't know if you caught the way that I said that, but this carries a ton of weight, and you can read it both ways. I'm going to read this verse, verse 3, with two different cadences and see, see how it changes. You gave Jesus the authority to give life to all whom you have given him. Okay? Or, you gave Jesus the authority to give life to all whom you have given him. Remember John's opening statement when he first recognizes Jesus in the flesh. Look, behold, he says, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the good people. No, he says the sin of the whole world. Hmm. You gave Jesus the authority to give life to all whom you have given him. Jesus is the giver of zoe ioninos, life eternal, he says. And it comes to everybody. Peter's dream later on will remind us it comes without partiality, that God shows no preference. Verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that they know you. Well, what is, what is that? It's a verb about knowledge, and the thing I want to pay attention to is the tense that it's in. Man, when I was a kid, I was taught to open the Bible and as quickly as possible find out what it means for me. It, I was not taught to be really careful about the verbs and future past tenses and whatever. That took some practice. Try to get in the practice of noticing those, and if you do hear You'll notice that this is that they know you. This is a present tense verb. Um, it, and and there's, there's ways to say this accurately, but give different nuanced meanings. In this present tense, especially if we read John, 
we know that he is talking about knowing and believing in a continuous, present, sort of active way. John does not in any way have a concept of you came to belief. Like, there was a point where you didn't have saving belief, and now, well, let me let me back up a second. You never arrive at knowledge of God and say, oh, okay, now I understand. And I think a lot of people believe that that's what belief means, or knowledge of God. Like, if I still have lingering questions or doubts, then I don't fully believe. That is not the way John talks at all. I don't think the way that's the way the Bible talks. It's an ongoing way of knowing, a sense that they are knowing you. This is what eternal life is, men, women, kids, everybody listening, Ben who's saying this, everybody here. Eternal life is a way of knowing God, and it continues on through a day-to-day way. Early believers didn't call themselves Christians. They were followers of the way. We talked about this in John 3.16 a long time ago, about, the, you know, that's like the most famous verse in the whole world <laughs> for the past however many decades, and that main verb is a continuous active participle. That's an I-N-G word. So John's meaning there is, if you are, not if you believe you will perish, or you will have eternal life, oh, I don't even know John 3.16, sorry. You know the verse. I don't need to recite it to you. <laughs> the, the believe in there is continuous. So I always thought of it as once you believe and you're done with that believing thing, then you're saved. And John is saying, if you are continuously believing in the present active sense, I-N-G word, then you future tense will be saved. So there's this deep ongoing knowing of God way of life that simply is very peaceably about choosing one thing and not another. And I want to argue it has a lot to do with choosing to view yourself as a mutual with the rest of humanity, to see neighbor as worthy of love because they're human, not because of how they satisfy us. One of our church fathers, Irenaeus, said, For the glory of God is a living human being. And the life of the human being is the vision of God. A a, a human being that is most fully alive is the glory of God too. And in all of history, the most alive human being we've ever bore witness to is the one who hangs on this cross. You and I wanting to know God more. That is what you and I are doing when we are believing. And that is good. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Later in Peter's second letter, 2 Peter, he'll say that you and I have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of God. And there, too, he means an ongoing way of life that's about ever more knowing of God. Right now, today, then, if you are a Christian or, or not, but if you have been harmed by the curse that says you don't think correctly, those questions you have are dangerous. Or until you really agree with this statement, God can't be with you, or God can't be close to you, or you can't be a part of this church. And if that has been your experience, be free today in knowing this and seeing this in Jesus' own statement. Believing in Jesus is like following him. All those things... It's, it's on point sometimes, and it's misguided at others. Sometimes you're right, and other times you need to change and learn. The thing you are not doing when you're believing in Jesus is giving up, saying whatever, 
I'll just trust in this cash or that this experience will bring me life. That's back to the old way. But even here, Jesus' love pulls and invites you back into life. So we come to these final verses. Verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. All right? And I think there he means this group of disciples he's praying for right now. They were yours. Okay, they already belong to God. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. We know those are the words of eternal life, don't we? I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world here. I'm adding that. I'm not praying for the world at this moment. I will later. Um, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. This is a beautiful statement about his disciples. They were yours, and you gave them to me. I, that that caused me to pause for a moment. Didn't John say in the very opening verses that everything in the world was created through the Son, and that all things that were created were created by him, and that nothing that was created was not? <laughs> I mean, he emphasizes a million ways that Jesus created everything. So how is God giving him something that he already owns? I think we belong to the Father as creator, and the Son as redeemer or healer. And according to Jesus, until we know him in faith and are, you know, through walking with him, through living with him as a learner of his or a disciple, we can't really think that we're in fellowship or community um, in a sort of knowing way, just like you're not in a knowing relationship with somebody that you're not living life with at all you know, which majority of all people. So we, you can't really know him if you're not wanting to know him and wanting to be with him is the idea. I think then that what Jesus is seeing here is that those who are not walking in faith with him are those who belong to the Father as creator through the Son. He still created them. The Word, this is the beginning of John, the Word created everything. And yet they don't belong to the Father as Redeemer yet, through the Son or the Word. So both are through the Son, He creates, but they belong to the Father, and now there's this redeeming, healing person, this renewing presence, Jesus, and we belong to Him when we're actually living with Him. Okay? And He is always presented to us as the giver of this life, life eternal. And these disciples of Jesus, the ones praying that he's praying for now, he says, they have kept your word. And it's so profound because in just a few hours, they're going to totally bail on him, and he knows it. In just a few hours, they're going to deny him. They're going to run away from him. They'll totally abandon him. And then when confronted, some are going to lie about their connection. Oh, I don't know that guy. He's crazy. And Jesus knows that they're going to do that. And his statement to the Father is, thanks for these guys, they have kept your word. Huh. That's a prophetic moment, I think, we're reading in John. I mean, the New Testament, this is just, a, it's an amazing thing, because these guys' faithfulness and willingness to give their lives over this way is something that is not perfect, and it's not consistent. 
And I was really taught that if you are not being a consistent, really owning it, standing right in every moment, man, God is upset with you. He's going to get you. And here Jesus is not saying, oh, I'm bummed. They're going to blow it. But I don't know. We'll deal with these idiots if we have to. No, he's saying, I love these guys. He's able to see. It's just beautiful. I don't know. It's a picture, I think, of Jesus' God's patience and understanding and this gracious, expansive love. Jesus knows that we'll be turned around, changed, transformed, even after we falter and fail. And I think we will keep his word because he's right here with us, alongside us, just like those disciples were being helped by the Spirit. We talked about that a lot last week. Well, now these disciples have come to know four realities. You see them in the, in the scriptures there, in the text. They know that, four that's, that everything they experienced in Jesus was truly from God. Not like God is super really God and Jesus is like this nice guy who's a little bit softy. No, it was all fully of God. And they know that, number two, that the words that you gave me are not fluff talk. They're your words. I always thought of Jesus as kind of opposed to God when I was little, quite frankly. God seemed real deal and Jesus seemed a little bit like a like a pansy. <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably what was going on then. So he's like, they, they learned that I'm not a baby who's not really God, they've learned I'm, I am all powerful with you. you. know They've learned these things. And then the third one, that I really came down from your very side, not just figuratively. This is real. And the fourth one, that they have come to believe that you sent me. So they believe that all of their experience in Jesus is an experience of God, that the words he says are actually God's, not some liberal weirdo. That's what I was always taught to be like. Anybody who's not like angry and threatening you with hell doesn't believe the Bible. That's so fake. That's not true at all. The words of Jesus are the words of God. And that he really came down from God's side, not just figuratively, which tells us about how mutual we are and how bonded we are to God as humans. And that they have come to believe that you sent me. Glory has come to me through them. Again, I think he's saying that's a prophetic future-looking statement. I don't know. I mean, it has in a sense, but how much more does glory come to him through them when they become the, the most important missionary team ever? I mean, they write the New Testament, for goodness sake. <laughs> that's pretty good. And what is this glory that comes to him through them? Well, look at verse 11, this last one we're looking at today in our, in our main text. I will remain in the world no longer, Jesus says, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, that they might be one with us. This is a profound mystery, my friends. I think it's an absolute mystery, but it's so beautiful. And nine more verses, Jesus, he'll expand this prayer, and he'll say, my prayer is not just for them, I also pray for all of those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, and so that's you and me, if we have believed in the message of these apostles, Jesus is praying for you and I, 2020, mid-COVID, Portland, Oregon, and beyond. My prayer is for those guys too, those kids, those women, those men, that they may all be one with me or us 
and that they may be one with each other like we are one with each other. That's a lot of oneness. <laughs> this is not, may they know their rightful place in this world. You know, parentheses, as lessers. It's not that. May they be one with us, he says. This is not, may they learn to observe their proper authority structures so that marriages and churches will operate correctly according to the divine hierarchy. No. Look, if structure and hierarchy and authority things are helpful in some way, uh, maybe I can't argue that. What I want to talk about is helpful in what way? And are they helpful toward bringing about this kind of glorious life that is seen most beautifully in the cross? Because as far as I can read the New Testament, that is not a picture of a person who's trying to control others. And it's not a person who has said, this is my authoritative role given to me by God, so therefore, everybody bow. No, he seems to say, I have the authority. The biggest thing I have is I have the authority to love and forgive everybody. That's totally different. This is not, may they all learn to observe their proper roles. No, this is, may they be one with us and one with each other. It's very much like the marriage picture in the beginning of creation. May they be one, not one A and one B. When husband and wife come together, they become mutuals, yes? This is, may they share in the same mutual relationship that you and I in the Spirit do, Jesus. I think he's saying. We have a mutuality. It's infinite. It's not domineering. It's co-equal. It's co-eternal. We're always seeking the well-being of another, of the other. We're not counting the power we have as something to wield against another for our own desires to be met. But we let those down for the sake of the other. This is the cross. He has all the power in the world to blot those people out. And literally say, you're not going to take my life today, you fools. I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm going to show you. I have the power to. I'm the one in charge, not you. Jesus had all of the right to say that. That's what Philippians 2 says. Though he could count equality with God as something to be grasped onto and wielded, instead he pours it out. He lets go of it. He, he, sorry. He lets go of that power. He doesn't hold on to it with a grasp. And then he kenosises, <laughs> he pours himself out, or he gives his own life. The cross is a picture of a person who is not taking power and is instead giving of his own life, and there is something in that that is the glorious eternal life. Be like this, said Paul in Philippians 2, this is glory. Some will call it weak or low, but only one has resurrected, as far as I know. <laughs> you tell me. Deep down, do you enjoy harming other people or do you enjoy loving them? How were we really built as human beings? What do we deeply, deeply desire at the core of our humanity? I've heard so many voices tell me that all I desire is sin and darkness and da 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 But then Jesus tells me he's a human and he says humanity is good. It has to be good. Otherwise, he's not good or not human. And I think historic Christian theology says he is fully human. I have given them. Now he jumps. I'm going to jump ahead to the last verses of this prayer. You got to read the whole thing on your own. For the next, read it every day for the next week and just soak this heartbeat of God into your own heartbeat. That can't hurt anybody. But in verse 22, he's talking. He says this. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Whoa! Now that's at the end of the prayer. So this is after he has said, now I'm praying for everybody. So in those words that I just read, verses 22 and 23 of John 17, he's literally saying, I want Ben Tertine and Rhonda and Matt and Jody and Jake and Chris and Don and all the different people in our community. I want them to all be one with each other like we are one with each other and one with us. And when that happens, then the world will know we are not full of crap. <laughs> the world will know this is legitimate. When we meet and live as a community of mutual people, we respect the other as a miracle. Then we come into one another's lives with the same goals that Jesus came into the world with. He came into the world to help, to love, to restore, to heal. We want to help people because we realize that God's love is not just for good people. It's for all people because God gave all to Jesus. When they visit our gatherings, when other folks, our neighbors come and visit or they work on projects with us or we're working alongside them, we never seek to bind other people to our personal will or to make them do what we want them to do before we're willing to show them love or honor or respect. Because Jesus didn't. We view others not as as somebody to consume or somebody more than us or less than us. We view others as mutual. And Jesus treated us that way. Yes, now this is important. Yes, he knows that we're created. And he is infinite. That's pretty clear. So we're not equal as gods. And some other religions and traditions will kind of go that route. Christianity is not saying that our sort of deification, if you will, or becoming like God means we actually take on the essential nature of God in his essence. But I'm not going to go any further than that on saying how I know that works, because what Jesus is saying here is we get real close to that. <laughs> you know, a total oneness with us like we are one with each other is as close as you can get to being God without being God. And, I, and I'll still hold, we're not God. <laughs> so anyway, it's an invite from Jesus to be so mutual with other people, to be so not trying to get something from them, not trying to force people to believe the same or agree with everything you do, is the way of love. And it's a trust that when we start to love one another, two things are probably going to happen. Okay, when we love one another in the mutual way, A, we're probably going to suffer like Jesus did. Because this world is far more interested about who's in power, being in control. I mean, just look at the world around you. I don't need to prove it. You get that. We like the idea of mutuality and talk about it with words like equality and justice, but we don't really like it. We still want people in charge who can stop and, you know, we want the way that it always has worked. So, Here's the point. Yes, if you stop treating women as less than men, and if you start treating and caring for homeless people and heterosexual deviants, as well as homosexual married couples and other couples, if you start to treat sinners and saintly people all as lovable, worthy, mutual humans 
who are absolute infinite miracles, who absolutely need all of the care that we are able to give them in healthy and beautiful ways, right? If we start to treat everybody like that, it's going to hurt. You're going to get hurt by somebody. It might be old school religious power brokers. I've been really hurt when I want to live like this for Jesus in a way where the nothing hurts like church hurt. And some of you have been hurt by the church when you've wanted to live this way. And it is almost impossible uh, to imagine living with that kind of love and, and not getting hurt. And yet Jesus says, yeah, it, it, that is going to happen. It's really painful. Um, the world is always going to try to knock you down to something that makes more sense. And nothing makes sense more than like social value on people. You know, you're important and good. You're not worth it. And Je that is just so un-Jesus. It's not even funny. So trying to live this way is going to hurt. Somebody's going to hurt you for doing it. That's for sure. However, it is an utter freedom that you step into. On the other hand, the two things that happen are on one hand, it hurts us, but on the other hand, it helps everything make sense. Because when you live in this kind of mutual thing, nothing is, nothing is like it. I suspect a lot of believers in churches haven't experienced this kind of mutuality that is required to hang on a cross. Notice that statement. It, re it required a sense of deep mutuality for Jesus to hang on the cross. And I think that's what the glory, <laughs> what, that's the glorious moment in everything that he's doing. When we treat one another with total mutuality, knowing that I am never responsible for your well-being, only God can be that, but I am loving your well-being and I'm wanting and seeking it. I live with Jesus for you and with you, but I'm bound to nobody other than the Father or the Redeemer, or the Spirit, which are all one God. Yes? It is a way of utter freedom in life while remaining perfectly and beautifully bonded to one another. See, sometimes we think freedom is total rabid individualism. That's not Christian freedom. Freedom is nobody's trying to take from me, or force me, or make me if they're gonna, before they can love me. That's not the way a Christian community is. No, they love me because I'm a human being that's a miracle of God. And then, as we live together, we live as mutuals. We give to one another. We're free, so we have meaningful bonds that are always building us up and not diminishing the image of God in us. I think this is the way of the church for 2,000 years. And my friends, I am confident that the churches most committed to this Trinitarian Jesus-described, Jesus-lived way of mutuality, uh, those kinds of churches, and I, we are that church, we are both going to suffer and live the best life possible, okay? That's Jesus. Zoe Ionias, life for the eons, if it were, you know, life eternal, life for the ages, eternal life, endlessly knowing God more, at peace with who we are, alive and well. I would say that the power brokers of our world are crumbling right before our eyes, every day, more and more so. The glory of old American power church is over. Those stone fortresses of, of, of tradition and false glory, those darkened rocks are losing their solidity and strength. 
under the weight of the cross. Nobody cares about the societies of power and the self-proclaimed authorities who beat everybody into submission with threats of eternal torment and damnation, excommunication. That's not love or grace. We know that. That isn't what we see in God in Christ. That is not Jesus. And like I said before, I don't care if you can pull a proof text out of context and try to make God into this evil being who's really wanting to torture most of humanity. That's just not him. We, we know that because we look at Jesus, as Jesus and the scriptures instruct us to. We want to come alive. That's the goal. Jesus shows us how to come alive, ironically, through death on a cross. <laughs> and that's the glory moment. Jesus shows us how to come alive by saying, look at what's happening on this cross. That, my friends, is the way. A cross he hangs on because he sees you as a brother or a sister of his, mutual human, not worth controlling or consuming, but worth loving and building up at any cost. Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing, he says to the people who are literally killing him. That is the way of Christ, and it has everything to do with that kind of mutuality between one another and with God. I think you see it in love your neighbor and love God. The, the law pointing to all of that, a desire to help and care for the other so strong that we can suffer and even die like Jesus to make that work. That is powerful love in this loveless world. I don't feel a lot of love from the world right now. I feel a lot of people who want to own me, a lot of people who want to control me. A lot of people telling me to sign here and do this and spend that and do that and da-da-da, and then I'll be okay, and then I'll be lovable, and then I'll be alive. I'm done with all that. I'm looking at the one who resurrected from the grave, and I would say resurrection and full restoration of all humanity is the promise, and I think that gives us an ever-growing hope. And I wouldn't believe any of it if Jesus hadn't actually raised from the dead. That's the key. So, in closing, I'll read the line we read already and we'll be done. Our fourth century friend, Hillary, Hillary of Poitiers. You know, have you noticed how I have a, time, a tough time to pronouncing his word? <laughs> I'm not a French speaker. Anyway, here he is. Uh, our fourth century friend, Hillary. He says, Jesus was now to be spit on and scourged and crucified, but the Father glorifies the Son, his Son. And the sun, the star in the sky, instead of setting, it fled, and all the other elements felt that same shock of the death of Christ. The stars in their courses to avoid complicity in the crime escaped by self-extinction from beholding the scene. The earth trembled under the weight of our Lord hanging on the cross and testified that it did not have the power to hold within him who was dying. The centurion proclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. Creation is set free by the mediation of this sin offering. The very rocks lose their solidity and strength. Amen.